Gonna be sold, gonna be quick. I sell for 2.30. A hush just descending over Flemington. We're close now, the lights are on. Stand by. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia, who are of course responsible for upholding the code of ethics and proper practice in bloodstock trade in Australia. And this episode is brought to you by Stable Financial and IRT and we thank our sponsors very much for their support. Joining me today are two gentlemen who bring more experience to the table than most racing players could dream of in a lifetime, I'd, I'd suggest. An 11-time Group 1 winning trainer, come respected bloodstock agent Bill Mitchell. He's done it all, he's seen it all, and he still has strong family ties, of course, to the family's famous Yarraman Park stud. He now heads up Mitchell Bloodstock with his son, James. Duncan Ramage, now some might not know that he was once a very promising jockey in the UK, but gratefully for the bloodstock world, that career was short-lived because Duncan's gone on to forge a wealth of experience around the world in the racing industry and and was an integral part of the success enjoyed by the legendary owner Dato Tanchin Nam and Bart Cummings. And he now heads up his own DGR Thoroughbred Services. Bill, Duncan, welcome to the shortlist. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Mick. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Duncan. Good morning, good morning. Um, when we were asked to do this interview, I was actually reflecting when I first came across you, Bill. And I think it was in one of my early stanzas at Ramwick. Um, originally, my first job at Ramwick was working for Neville Big, but I'd moved on the time I was working with Bart. And uh, I think you took over a horse that Bart used to train, Stylish Century. Um, and I had to look up to remember when this was. And if Stylish Century was around today, he'd be 35 years old. So I've known yep. you burgeoning on 35 years. Most trainers, Bill, when they, they, they sort of make that move in the racing industry and they go down the road of training, they're in it for life. But you've very successfully transitioned into life as a, a bloodstock agent. Can you just briefly tell me about the that move, that, that change of career, I guess, and what was the appeal for you to, to take that step? I think that I... It got to a point in my life where I was ready to move on from training. So I didn't have too many plans at that point, but I've always had, you know, whether they're old clients or from my training days or new clients. And, and obviously, you, after being around for 30 years, you get to know a lot of people in the industry and you have a lot of friends and a lot of people you do business with. And I pretty much evolved into being a bloodstock agent. I worked for Kevin Maloney at Sedgino you know, for 10 years and I'm still on his advisory board. So that was a, actually a full-time job for most of those 10 years. Um, and I was always doing my own bit of bloodstock agency work and um, I have some very old, very good clients in Hong Kong that I always look after their horses, manage them and purchase them and oversee everything. So it, it just evolved into, into a business and, and um, it's less stressful, <laughs> less tiring 
um, and uh, gives you a little bit more of a life outside of racing than being a horse trainer. And Duncan, obviously the the career as a jockey was short-lived a couple of seasons. We were reminiscing off air about uh, some of that detail, but you travelled the world and experienced many sides of the bloodstock industry before coming to Australia and, and of course, meeting two gentlemen that would give you some of your greatest success and forge such a famous team, being uh, the legendary owner, Dardo Tanchinem, and, and the great Bar Cummings. How did that relationship begin? Well, firstly, I think uh, my rising weight probably saved me from being proved to be a poor-class jockey. So I had to do something else, and I moved into the stud worlds, both in Newmarket, and I spent three years in the United States with various outfits. Um, but the association with Datto started, I started up a small company, DGR, in 1991, I think, first registered. And um, I was riding track work for Bart at that time, and then also consulting a, a bloodstock group headed by uh, Michael Ryan, late Michael Ryan. Sandra Anita Bloodstock, and I was dispatched to the Magic Million sales. Bart said he had this guy, doesn't like spending much money, he's got, you got 30,000, go and buy him a horse. So I trotted off and I bought a horse, um, happened to buy Tate Gallery, and Bart said, you poms, you can't get the English out of you, why have you bought a Tate Gallery? I said, well, I've only got $30,000, here's the horse. Anyway, the horse ran his first three starts as a two-year-old before Christmas. Um, he was a one-time favourite for the uh, Magic Millions, but there was a clerical error in the second acceptance, so he wasn't eligible. He did run in a golden slipper. So my first horse for Dato was reasonably successful. Uh, I got to know who the buyer was after I bought this horse, and Dato unleashed me the next year to buy some more. And so we went from there. He always said he was only going to have three horses at any one time. Well, that got to six, that got to ten. I think at his zenith, we probably had 40, 45 horses for him. So uh, 30, 35 years later, I was still doing the job. And um, we're now on the next generation of the Tans. Dad, I passed away in 2018. My board is now four members, his four siblings, along with myself. So we run a business. We have an annual AGM, a budget. And, uh, you know, they still allow me to operate, provided I remain within the budget. What a great legacy. And it's beautiful that it's been able to continue and the colours can continue racing on Australian tracks. I think it's fantastic. It's something that uh, all racing fans would appreciate. Now, gentlemen, we'll, it'd be remiss of me if we didn't tackle a couple of big issues in today's episode. Let's get to the first of those. Whether the breeding season should be revamped. Hi, it's Adam Timms here from Stable Financial. We are very happy to support the FBAA because like their members, we also offer highly respected expert advice to horse owners, breeders and syndicators. Whereas Bloodstock Agents focus on the horse flesh, at Stable Financial we focus on the business and tax matters. Please come and talk to the team at Stable Financial. We're passionate about this wonderful industry we're all in and we look forward to helping you improve your horse business. All the best over the spring carnival. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in recent weeks. I think it's been driven by a couple of people. Maybe, maybe uh, Michael Kent, Victorian trainer, is one of those. He always has a strong opinion on issues like this and can bring them to the media attention. But there's been a fair bit of discussion about whether the Australian breeding season needs to be 
changed up, whether it needs a bit of a refresh, should it be pushed back or or brought forward? Uh, Bill, I'll start with you. What are your views on, on that and whether we need to refresh things? Look, I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, if you don't want to breed your horse on the 1st of August, on the 1st of September, then you can wait. But I don't think there's too much. I, I per personally almost prefer my foals to be born in September than August. But, uh, you know, I think it's it just... It rolls along as it rolls along. It's a very well-run, well-managed industry. The people that do it professionally are extremely good at what they do. I don't think they're very interested in Mick Kent's opinions, quite honestly. Um, and really, you know, a lot of good horses being bred all over Australia and by very competent people. And I haven't actually heard anyone say that they need to change the breeding season. Yeah, you know, I would I would support uh, Bill's view. You know, not in my view, there isn't needed a change. There might perhaps be some of the stallion masters might feel with the modern day stallions having such huge books to cover, an extra couple of weeks might help them get through what is currently a compressed breeding season. But um, no, I wouldn't be changing. I'm sure that the the stallion owners wouldn't mind another couple of Absolutely. weeks. Absolutely, <laughs> I think that's probably part of the driver behind the the concept. I'm sure if they want to get it done, it'll get done by the, the breeders are a very strong organisation and very well managed and by a great group of people who mostly work together and uh, if they want to change something, they'll go about it. There's been so much conversation around the success in particularly this carnival of horses that have been born in October and November. With that in mind, and given the better climate situation in the latter part of the spring do we need to look at extending the breeding season or at least encouraging and educating more mare owners about the benefits of breeding later in the year uh, look it's it's it, you know it's relevant to when your mare's foaling if she's foaling you, you you get sort of times you don't always have a lot of saying when you're going to do it at the end of the day if you know, they miss, they slip, they things go amiss, all, all sorts of things happen and you're just happy to get them in foal at some point usually. And if it's a bit later, well, you're less chance of getting them in foal the following year possibly. So I don't think there's always a lot of planning in it. It just evolves that way. It wasn't many years ago. It was actually already moved back from the 15th of September. That was the opening date of covering and pushed, uh, pushed forward to the 1st of September. I believe if we pushed it even further forwards, you'd have even more foals born in the wrong climatic season. You know, we're getting foals now born still in winter, um, and that's not really conducive to the best of growth. And you can see a lot of data there that some of the best horses going around, even in modern examples, are born far later in the in the season, you know, your likes of your nature strips, so you think Vancouver's, Arcadia Queen, they're recent examples, they're all November horses. So uh, going going even earlier is going to be detrimental to the growth and development of those early foals, in my belief. Well, given that foals born early in the season do it a bit tougher, you know, it's colder, the feed is not as good, you know, the natural environment is still transitioning out of winter. Can you see any physical differences in yearlings come sales time? Do, do horses born early, do they sort of carry any of that 
that strain through to the sales or is it all evened out by then? I don't think you can see much by the time they've had a yearling prep. They all look beautiful. Um, you know, they've been, they've been prepped and some horses, the later foals are a bit backward and some you wouldn't know when, you know, you don't necessarily know when they're born to look at them. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are less mature. It might be to do with their pedigree. It might more so than the time of year they're born because to be honest, by certainly by the end of January and you wouldn't necessarily, if you stood five yearlings in front of me, I don't think I'd be able to tell you when they were born. I might be able to guess at what they were by, but um, it'd be very hard to pick when they were born. I think like the bulk of the commercial yearlings are sold in January and February. Um, obviously Easter is considered the most selective markets, but it has the lesser numbers. So at that window when they're, those yearlings are 16 to 18 months old, if one yearling is three months older than the other, the percentage of that horse's life cycle thus far is far greater. But that three months by the time they become back in two-year-olds, three-year-olds and even into four-year-olds, that three-month difference has caught up its negligible. It doesn't exist. But at that January yearling stage, yes, there is a 25% difference in the growth rate of those horses purely by the age, the number of months they've been alive. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Gentlemen, that leads us beautifully to our next topic. I really want to pick your brains here and get inside the head of a couple of experts regarding the art of yearling selection. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. The Magic Millions catalogue is out. Everyone's reading through it with much anticipation and, and farms are opening their doors to agents and buyers to come and do on-farm inspections. How important are those on-farm inspections and on-farm visits to how you both approach the yearling sales? Um, I almost need to see them on the farms for a few reasons. One is purely time management. Um, obviously, if we can, particularly where you can go to the hunter and you can look at, let's say, six or 700 yearlings in four or five days, which is what we'll do early December, you know, that helps me immensely at the sale just in the management of time. You can't look at 1,200 horses properly in three or four days, you just, it's just not possible to do it. Um, so, and, and it is interesting to see them, and, and I do go to a lot of farms earlier than that and see them as young foals and, and make a few notes, and obviously you remember some of them and, and uh, things stick in your mind, but you get to know a lot of the horses, and, but, but seeing them on farm does help immensely as a time management tool, and also you see their behaviour, you see, um, and they're not fully prepped at that point. You see a slightly more natural animal um, than you see at the sales when they're absolutely peak condition, looking magnificent, big peachy bums on them, and coats are shining. Um, but I find it's a big help to go and look at them on the farm 
for, for those few reasons. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing the on-sale, on-farm inspections since the 1990s, including going to New Zealand. That was always an annual pilgrimage. But as Bill said, we've now nearly got 2,000 head of horses for sale in January alone. So it's really become a necessary process to get through the huge books of horses. You know, a big sale used to be 500 horses. We're now commonly eight, 900 head in a catalogue. So that's a large number of horses to get your head around. But I do prefer in those visits, I like to try to find a like a horse rather than treat it as a short list process where you're just trying to cull, cull the numbers. Uh, I'm not trying to cull them. I'm just trying to identify a horse that I take a shining to that I'd like to see again. So we've established the importance of looking at yearlings on farm prior to the sales. But Bill, having trained group one horses from derby distances to exceptional two-year-olds, do you have a preferred type? When you're looking, are you, are you naturally drawn or pulled to a certain style of horse, to a certain style of yearling, or are you able just to put all, put all your past glories behind you and look at the individual in front of you? I think you look at the individual. Uh, you won't always get it right, the distance that it's going to end up running over, but... Every, you know, there's a lot of pressure now to get to try to buy the two-year-old. Um, so you are always looking for natural muscle. Not always, but I do look for natural muscle and I do look... And then you have to be very careful because a lot of those horses that look beautiful, big, strong and clearly going to be expensive colts, a lot of them need gelding, right? They get very big and very strong and very heavy and... If their behaviour is not absolutely immaculate, they can, you know, you're, you're in a tricky situation where you just spend a lot of money on a horse and you're ringing someone up saying, listen, I think you better gel this horse because no one likes to make that call or receive it. And, um, however, you know, there are big obvious horses at horse sales that anyone could probably pretty much buy. Uh, you look at their pedigree and you look at the horse and you go, wow, look at him. If he, if he can run, he can really run. Um, obviously, a bit more uh, of the there's the scientific side, and then there's the art, artist side. Trying to be the artist who can pick that horse um, slightly mess, less mature and see if you can imagine or or have a picture of how that horse is going to develop. Now, if you can get that right, you'll buy some magnificent, beautiful horses that don't look big, strong, strapping yearlings at the yearling sale. Um, but they might be the ones that are, that are, that are three-year-olds that are running any distance, um, particularly slightly longer distances. They can be less mature as young horses and end up being top class um, and probably less expensive. Um, however, we do look at... It's very easy to be sucked into the big, strong, well-muscled horse, colt, filly. And then, of course, you, you're taking into account the pedigree and you just hope that that, uh, that you get it right. And um, some people are very, very good at getting it right, as Duncan clearly is over a long period of time, as people like Alan Bell is extraordinary. Um and there are people who are good judges and there are probably people who should get some help. Do you remember what General Nadine looked like as a yearling? 
General de Diem, um, I looked at him at the sale. There wasn't much pedigree going on there. Um, and he wasn't the first season of his sire who hadn't done much in a DM. He wasn't really a recognised stallion until the general came along. He had an injury on his knee, which he always carried the scar from, and a syndicator bought him, and the farm took him back for a month. And then he, they came back after a month, and they went out and looked at him, and they said, well, actually, we don't want to take him. And the breeders then knocked on my door and asked if we would train the horse, which was no problem. And it was when Peter Moody was in partnership with me in Brisbane. And um, the rest was history. But he wasn't beautifully conformed in front. He was rather in on his knees. But he was a beautiful horse, um, He body-wise and muscle uh, you know, he's very, uh, he was flashy with his flaxen mane and tail and a lovely chestnut, yeah, and could run from the minute he set foot on the track. Hi, it's Adam Timms here from Stable Financial. I'm very proud of the team we have at the Stable. We understand and enjoy this amazing industry and that's what makes it easier for us to assist clients improve their businesses and protect their assets. We also have a fantastic client base and would like to wish all our clients a very good spring, both on the farm and on the racetrack. Please come and talk to us at the stable. We'd love to see you. Duncan, at the other end of the scale, you've had so much success buying stayers, but it's a little harder to pick a yearling, or maybe it isn't. I'll I'll get your view on looking at a yearling that is going to get over ground and, and might... Uh, might furnish into a really good stay. I think if I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone at the sale say, oh, this horse will need time, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stay. It might just be a, a weaker individual. What do you look for when you're, you're looking at yearlings that, that you hope might get over a trip? Well, they're very different types of horses between, in my view, the, the, the sprinter and the horse that will get over ground. Uh, we've had the luxury of watching the Olympics recently and if you look up the lineup of the 100 metres sprint to the type of athlete that's presented there and then say my, one of my childhood heroes was Sebastian Coe always used to win the 1500 metres. Again, a very different type of physical individual. Um, our racehorses really don't do the, the marathon events. There's no point looking at all these little Kenyans that run Kipkanos and things that run 25 miles. Our thoroughbreds are not running the equivalent of 25 miles. We're still running fast twitch short speed course even when you consider two miles um so you know and they do develop differently um going back to our human human analogy you look at sort of a lot of junior football teams and i say this with the deepest of respect so that the faster mature polynesian or islander boys compared to little skinny white boys they're different very different at that stage but if they're any good they're both playing in the same first grade team later on as adults. So different types of horses. Yeah, absolutely. Pre-Christmas two-year-old racing is a, you know, it's always a, a precursor to that Magic Millions sort of uh, classic race. And people want to see the progeny of a first season size hit the track nice and early and it can give stud farms a little boost and a late season kick with bookings and whatnot. 
I'll ask both of you what your, what your take is on pre-Christmas two-year-old racing. Is it important? Is there too much emphasis on those early races? And what's your view on the likelihood of horses training on from, from those? There seems to be a fair few that are up and about early and that probably aren't seen again. Uh, Bill, what's your thought? Well, for very few two-year-old races, a lot of two-year-olds do a lot of hard work and a lot of barrier trials to try to get into those early races, but there's very few winners at the end of the day out of all those horses that are going around. And you do increase your risk, you increase wear and tear and your risk of injury by doing too much with young horses. Um, there's not a lot of early two-year-old races. I think there's probably less now than there was 25 years ago. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to weigh it up, right? Risk reward. Do I push this horse? Because if I qualify for Magic Million, then I get in the Magic Million and I win it. Or just getting qualified for the Golden Slipper. But personally, I think I probably don't like to push the two-year-olds too hard before Christmas. I mean, there's there's very few races at the end of the day. You're, you're looking at one race a fortnight in New South Wales almost. So, you know, there's hundreds of two-year-olds in work trying to go, try, aiming towards those races. And in six months' time, there's a lot of races for them. But you might miss the boat on Magic Million. I think they have to tell you. The horse goes through his normal training and you've got to ask them to do a bit more each time you work them, they do a bit more and you're educating them and you're teaching them along the way. And if they go a bit shin sore or if you notice them laying down in the stable a lot, then I think you've got to be prepared to back off. Um, it's like push it up to the cliff, but don't push it over the cliff. You, you can create problems that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your, your career. Duncan, what are your thoughts? And, and when you were working with, Bart and, and with and with Dada Tanchin Nam, what were your when would your yearling purchasers start to be asked to do work? Would they do anything before Christmas? Obviously very few of them raced given the, the style of horse you were buying, but when would when would they start to come into the system? Um, typically, you know, not many of our two year olds actually trialed or even raced before Christmas, but definitely pre Christmas form has a relevance to the two-year-olds of that given year. Um, but it was very interesting listening to Bill's comment about, you know, when do you take the juice out of the lemon. Um, a few years ago, we did an internal survey just for our own use, and we took the top 23 historical money owners of all time at that time. And that list included the Maccabi Divas, Winks, Black Caviar, Chautauquas, and it was actually fascinating that only of that top 23 money-winning horses, earning horses, only Octagonal had won a race as a pre-Christmas two-year-old. And only Criterion was the only other horse of those 23 that had even run prior to Christmas. So if you want to be on that survey, if you want to be in the top 23 money earners of all time, and I would imagine now Red Sales popped onto the list, so so has um, so has um, the Everest winner, um, but at that time, and we're talking serious horses, and you know, Chautauquas, Octagonals, the Kaby Divas, Winks, Black Cavalry, you don't get much better than that. One, and he was a freak uh, in Octagonal. He actually ran second in the Slipper. 
he had won a race before Christmas. That's a fantastic little piece of research. And we all want a horse, obviously, that is fast, but we also want a horse that has longevity too, so we can enjoy it for the, the most amount of time. Be interesting to see with the advent of these big money sprint races if those stats change. Yeah, and you'll see those numbers will slightly change in the modern era because we now have the Everest and those short course races worth a hell of a lot of money. But the majority of those horses that are the top money earners are horses that are winning top races at a mile and beyond, and typically a mile and a quarter. Very few of them are out and out splinters. And I think of that list, we did Shataka and Black Caviar were the only sprinters. The rest were all wait for age, middle distance horses. So a bit like cars. There's only so many miles on the clock. There's only so many runs in them. And when do you want to when do you want to take those runs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, there are the, the Pieros and the Vancouver's who win the Breeders' Plate and go on and win the Golden Slipper and get syndicated for forty million dollars, and that's that's a huge incentive. Um, but you have got to be very careful with them, and, and there's only going to be two or three stallions, Australian bred stallions, really. Oh, probably more than that, but expensive ones go to stud every year and um yeah that's great but there's a lot of other ways to make money owning racehorses or to make them pay their way you, you know prize money is really strong in this country and and if you've got a sound three-year-old and you're racing him till he's seven i mean essentially whether it be male or female um it's there's a huge incentive in that i mean they can win a lot of money you look through the form guide of a Bunch of mares going around in Sydney on Saturday in a benchmark seventy. They've all won two and three hundred thousand dollars. They're earning really, really good prize money, and they're worth as breeding stock. They're worth a lot of money as well. But if you do hit the jackpot and get the stadium that goes to stud, if you get so you think, I mean, you see what they're earning every year, and he didn't do it as an early two-year-old, and he's ended up being a fantastic stallion. But uh, two-year-old racing's I think is there. There are risks involved with knowing, uh, you know, pushing them too hard, and you do need to know when to. Child racing is very much winner takes it all, and the rest can go and leave the room. And of course, the anticipation will be palpable. I think from those that, that like looking at pedigrees and having a having a look at the new shiny things on the market. Uh, gentlemen, is there a first season sire whose progeny we haven't seen in a yearling sale to date that? that you're particularly keen to see, you know, the likes of The Autumn Sun and Written By and, and Justify are a few names that spring to mind. Duncan, is there a, a first season stallion that, that you're keen to see their progeny of? Look, if you're, if you're following the model of trying to find classic three-year-olds that might train on, um, The Autumn Sun's got to be right in that demographic. He was that himself. Uh, his sire's done the same thing, done deal. Um, so he'd probably be the horse that I'd be keen is to try try one out of and see if they're any good. Well, I would say I, I'm going to be very interested to see the Justifies. Um, he's a very big horse. It'll be interesting to see what they look like. We saw a few foals at the foal sales of these first season size. And there's the faster Australian bread, like written by. Um, you're going to get a more speedy type, you would expect. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting, certainly, It'll be interesting to see them. Um, 
never been a huge fan of American dirt stallions myself, but more than ready was a great stallion and it does happen along the way. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Well, there's a bit of a preview of the upcoming yearling sales season. Before I let you go, gentlemen, there's always lots of conversation post-carnival and whatnot about what we can improve and what we can't improve and what we'd love to improve but probably won't. Uh, a little segment here on the short list called In a Perfect World. And I'd love to get your thoughts. Bill, I'll start with you. If you were the head of racing administration in Australia for a day, what's the first action point that you'd take to improve the state of racing in Australia? Oh, that's a tough one. It's going pretty well in Australia compared to most places in the world. Yeah, true. Um, I think we're very lucky that, that Australia always had the tab and only on-course bookmakers. It was, uh, it was a good... It was a, certainly a very good, um, a very good way to run things. It ended up being a bonanza for Australian racing. We're, we're so fortunate to have the prize money. We're, I think that they're on top of animal welfare. That's going to be the, the next, or it's already the big thing. It's it's massive and can't be underestimated. And I think, you know, animal welfare and retirement, that's all very important. And I think they're onto it. I've got to say, I think Racing Australia across the board and, and Racing New South Wales, who are my jurisdiction, so to speak, uh, have done a fantastic job of late. Um, prize money's extraordinary. I think when you look at a lot of races, there needs to be close attention paid to which races can retain their, um, their black type status or what level of it. And also, I think... Just because something's old doesn't make it good. And I think that these Derby and Oaks races in the spring are, are definitely uh, need looking at. But I know they, they pull the old tradition line in Victoria, but that Victorian Derby is a horrible race. And uh, it should be 2,000 metres. And, and if it was 2,000 metres, it'd be a fantastic race. And whoever came up with 2,500 metres is a classic distance anyway. I'll, I'll answer the question with a question. And we talked about the top racing administrator. Is the top racing administrator really making the general decisions while perhaps what might be called a lower ranking officer are making the major decisions? So we have to question if we ended up in the top job, how much sway do you really have? But I think Bill, Bill touched on what I think needs to be looked at uh, and it's been discussed a lot lately is the Patent Committee. Um, I think there needs to be a complete panel reset. A bit like an ASIC appointed uh, commission. I think that the PRAs themselves, the principal racing authorities, should be removed from the vote. I believe the PRAs, the principal racing authorities, should be part of the panel selection. But once that panel is selected, they must accept the findings of the panel. So if, for instance, we want to demote some of the Oakses or Derbys down or up or make the Everest 
a group one as it probably justifies to be, the panel is there to be done. Because currently the panel is dysfunctional. One of our fellow FBAA members is actually a consultant to the Patent Committee, but he hasn't been consulted, I believe, since 2018. So it's irrelevant to talk about whether the Everest should be a Group 1 or not, or whether we demote uh, some of the state derbies. Uh, the panel needs to be functional and be able to make a decision, and that decision is abided by. We have, we have race day decisions that are done by the stewards. We uphold those. And uh, yeah, the panel, the panel has to be a mechanism that can make a decision, and that decision is abided by. And the problem within the current panel seems to be the PRAs themselves. There's a lot of issues there to unwind and Racing Australia's involvement and whatnot. But yeah, I think most would agree that that's certainly something that could, uh, could do with some fine tuning and an overhaul. Uh, to make things go more smoothly. Well, gentlemen, we've covered a lot of ground in today's episode of The Shortlist. Thank you very much to Bill Mitchell from Mitchell Bloodstock and to Duncan Ramage from DGR Thoroughbred Services for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, I appreciate Thanks, being invited to be on and uh, I hope the content we've provided with Bill and I is interesting enough that somebody listens. <laughs> Absolutely is. And of course, a thank you to our sponsors, Stable Financial and to IRT. And just remember, if you're thinking of going to the yearling sales in the upcoming season or getting involved in a race source or perhaps starting your own broodmare band, the best place to start is with a bloodstock agent, of course, with an FBAA member. And to get in touch with one, visit bloodstockagents.com.au. Thanks for listening to episode nine of The Short.